Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the CD Rodeo, a platform for discussion, a platform where we discuss topical issues and also provide an opportunity to counter misinformation and disinformation that is trending on the online space, particularly in the ecosystem. Uh, on this show, we have had the opportunity of countering several of the conspiracy theory targeted at um, coronavirus vis-a-vis -vis the vaccine, um, which is aimed to counter coronavirus. All those conspiracy theories have been countered on this show, and we have also had the opportunity of addressing very important national issues. But today, we will be discussing a very important conversation, as it were, in this country, insecurity, insecurity. Everywhere you go in the north, the south, west, and east, it's all about insecurity. It's a, a, a huge question that has to when Nigerians are safe in their come to banditry, to uh, kidnapping, and of course, the recent um, state, uh, which as a result of this deformation that led to the death of many Nigerians. So today we have uh, one of, uh, <laughs> permit me to call him, one of our very senior comrades, <laughs> Dr. Chris. We, we, we apologize for that break in transmission. <laughs> it's almost like a usual norm uh, with the system, just like electricity, uh, so is the internet. Uh, we deeply apologize for that breaking transmission. So we're back. So I was introducing our, our guest for today, a security expert. Um, in fact, an anti-security expert, one who has worked in New Ukraine of the of the of permanent use world. He has worked around the world, holding position from Geneva all the way to the United States and then to Nigeria. Uh, a senior researcher, um, a fellow of several anti-security agencies. It's my honor. It's my honor to welcome Chris Kwaja um, for this conversation. Um, again, apologize um, uh, for there's a bit of transmission problem that we do have. So uh, I hope that we're able to, to go along with this. So Chris Kwaja, like I said, is a renowned expert in terms of country disinformation. Um, he's also a very strong fellow at the United States Institute of Peace, uh, an agency that works towards peace globally. In of countering um, what we know as the farmer edda conflict and very uh, intentionally got, got involved with a program where, that is aimed to solve this conflict that is ravaging the Nigerian state. Um, again, Dr. Chris Kwaja, you're welcome, sir. Thank you very much, Austin, and uh, it's nice being with the CDD family this afternoon. And good afternoon, Nigeria. Okay. All right. Thank you. Okay, so let's begin this conversation. 
I'm just going to go on my permit. I'll just go on my phone. There's, I won't need to go back there. Yeah. I hope this, this just goes. All right. So can you see hear me, sir? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you see hear me? Yeah. Very good. So I'll just go on this. I'll, I'll, I'll leave. Um, let me just use one of the systems. Okay, good. So we can use this. We're okay. All right, thank you, Leslie. So let's let's interrogate. Dr. Chris Squadron. Hello. Hello. Yes, can you hear me, sir? I can hear you. Very good. So I was asking, are we are we are we in uh, will I call it, are we in a war as a country? Uh, thank you very much. And uh, I want to start by thanking the Center for Democracy and, Democ and the Development CDD for this uh, very wonderful opportunity to uh, contribute my own uh, quota to the discourse on Nigeria and the prevailing security challenges and the big question is whether or not nigeria is at war uh, war is a very complex concept uh, complex because by definition only states go to war but individuals groups can beat the drums of war and in beating the drums of war what such individuals and groups can do or will do or basically do in the case of what in the context of what we have today in Nigeria is that they begin to speak to touch on very specific issues that deals with the unity and cohesion of the country and you need to understand the fact that the Nigerian state as it is today is sitting on a very delicate balance of ethnicity, religion, regionalism that are all immersed in the politics of what I call identity. And that one of the key areas I've been working on over time is about the politics of identity in Africa. And my assumption is that identity is not a problem identity defines who you are identity confers on you dignity identity confers on you a place as a human being wherever you are but the politicization of this identity in ways that makes individual instrumentalize it as a weapon in managing intergroup relations becomes the major challenge that we deal with and in the context of the farmer header conflict, that is where we are today. And you can see from the multiple narratives that have emerged in explaining the farmer header conflict. But before I go to the farmer header conflict, let me just speak to insurgency. That when insurgency started in 2009, mm -hmm. it it became difficult to mobilize a national understanding and agreement of whether or not insurgency was a national security challenge because 
there was an identity coloration to the insurgency. The Muslims, some people believe that the Muslims had their own interpretation. Some people believe that the Christians had their own interpretation. And the failure of leadership at both the federal, the state, and the local government level to mobilize Nigerians to a point where we needed to understand that we were facing a common threat to our human and national security was totally absent. And because it was absent, it made it easy for people to begin to appropriate the language of victimhood at all levels in explaining the insurgency. Today, the farmer-header conflict is also in that category where the absence of a nationally crafted narrative that makes us appreciate that a conflict between farmer and herders who should have been two production forces that will help and catalyze our economy on the path of growth and development is being interpreted in a way that gives coloration to the conflict where you find people who believe that it is an expansionist drive by Fulanis, who are Muslims, to take over land. It is an attempt to take, to take over land to take over lands from areas that are Christians. To take over land from areas that are Christians, not necessarily Christians alone, because we okay. have we have farmer header conflicts even in Sokoto and Tassina and Kebi. Yes. The yes, yes, yes. is for that it is also an attempt by peasant farming communities to deny Fulanis, who are also Muslims, opportunities to rear their cows and that there is a very strong relationship between livelihood and cattle rearing in the context of how uh, the, 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 the pastoralists, who are also mostly Fulanis and uh, Muslims, rear their cows. The third narrative is about the climate change and the environment, about how the environment is also becoming a key driver of conflict and that the environment even affects both sides. And the third is that the breakdown of the key instruments for dialogue and peace as presented by the traditional rulers that over time have played key roles in mediating amongst and between conflicting parties, the breakdown in the state in terms of its capacity to be a neutral arbiter when it comes to managing tensions between communities, all further heighten what we see today as the conflict because what we are dealing with now is that the state is not even seen as a neutral arbiter and when i talk of the state i'm not talking about a state government i'm talking about the nigerian state both at the nigerian state yes and the local government the state is not seen as a neutral arbiter that can easily effectively and proactively mobilize its own resources and deal with this conflict. And what we see increasingly is that the resort to the use of maximum retaliatory measures in dealing with conflict or in dealing with banditry in the context of organized crime that we see in the Northwest and the Northwest has also created what we call a security dilemma 
and the by by expression a security dilemma is a situation whereby in the course of trying to deal with a particular conflict deploying security you end up creating a new form of conflict because we are seeing increasingly that the bandits that are supposed to be crushed or dealt with by government end up regrouping and coming back to launch attack on innocent civilians and then dealing with both the civilian communities and even the government because we've seen instances where military personnel, police personnel have been attacked by government. Now, how did we get here? I want to focus on the, the, the problem. But because before I focus on the problem, I just want to also draw attention to the fact that right now, the country is dealing with huge security challenges, not just from ahead. In the Northeast, exactly. we have the unresolved issue of insurgency. In the Southwest, we see the spiraling of the farmer header conflict. In the Southeast, the issue, the unresolved issue of uh, secession by IPOP, led by Namdi Kanu. In the South-South, we have the unresolved issue of oil in the context of how communities are beginning are challenging the federal government with respect to resource control and other issues. In the North Central, and the Northwest, communal conflict, as well as organized crime in the, in the, in the context of banditry. Now, these are all the kinds of conflicts that the country is dealing with right now. And all these conflicts contribute to what we see today as a national security challenge that the government needs to deal with. Do we have the right personnel to deal with this conflict in terms of the deployment of personnel, security personnel? I said no. Is it enough to deploy personnel just to deal with this conflict? I say no. There are many issues within the conflict spectrum that you don't really need the deployment of security, but that the deployment of security personnel itself is an it's, it's, it's because we've not been able to deal with many of these issues in a proactive manner. Now, what are some of the key challenges we are dealing with in the context of the conflict we face? And I'm focusing on the farmer header conflict. The first is that ever since we commenced the discussion about what is it we want to do in responding, to the farmer header conflict. There has not been a nationally defined, agreed formula for dealing with this conflict. And what you see is that the federal government has its own strategy, deploy security. State governments have their own strategy, which do not sometimes align with what the federal government is doing. And we saw that in the context of the conflict between the Benue state government and the presidency, where at a point the president directed Inspector General of Police to go to Benue. He was living in Benue. And that on its own created a huge problem within the country where people asked, who is really in charge? Is it the president or the IG that violated that rule? And nothing happened to the IG. The second point is also about 
the nature of approach. Sometimes the federal government through the armed forces will sit down and decide that they are establishing special task force on this, Harbin Kunama one and two, Operation that many of these tax forces and operations are not initiatives that were jointly decided between the armed forces, the state government, and the local governments. The state governor sits down only to hear, like any other person, the Nigerian military has established this and these operations or this and this force have been deployed to a particular country to manage internal security operations. That is a very wrong approach because when you do that, it further creates disconnect between the levels of government in terms of how they can collaboratively design approaches to deal with the issue. And this point I'm making underscores the fact that the absence of a whole of government approach to dealing with a conflict of this nature will further heighten the conflict. And where okay. such happens, the criminals in question begin to identify and even celebrate what I call state weakness. And okay. because of that state okay. weakness, it makes it easy for them to perpetuate and consolidate on the evil that they are perpetrating. Thank you very much, because I, I wanted to, to quickly, uh, so we can, the question I asked was, I'm happy you says individuals tend to beat the drums of war and that states do go to war, which means individuals don't necessarily go to war. But when you have an ethnic group against an ethnic group and it's turning to be a conflict that is driving like war, what would you call that war? Um, as, as, yes as, or no, maybe. As, 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 as a student of uh, strategic studies, uh, war is not something that non-state actors undertake. It is a state responsibility. And uh, just like I said, individuals cannot declare war. Non-state actors cannot declare war, but they can beat the drums of war in ways that amplifies certain issues that might plunge a country into civil war. And we've okay. seen that, for instance, with the, with the, with the Nigerian Civil War, uh, which started in 1967. Yeah, so so that's good. I mean, I just wanted to clear that out. Nigeria is not at war, but we are yeah. going through a very strong insecurity that is leading us to strong conflict, true or false? Yeah. yeah, true. Okay, okay. So now um, I'm going to take you up on because you, you are, your strategic thinking, your strategic idea need to come now. We recognize, let's avoid the too many problems we already know. We already know there are conflict everywhere. We already know there are insecurity. You can't travel from Abuja to, to Kaduna, for example. You can't even travel from Abuja to, to somewhere like Kogi State or, 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 or Edo State or Enugu State without the mentality of the fear of being attacked. I mean, um, almost every day you get videos or messages of people who have been attacked on the highway if it's not in Ore Road or a Bini Road or a Lagos road is in one area in Ekiti, is in another area in um, in Sokoto, is in one area in Castina. Uh, talked about those boys that were the the, the, the boys the, the school boys that were taken away uh, at the dead of the night and all of those insecurity. 
how can we solve this security challenge? Let's look at recommendations and probably solutions going forward, uh, relying on your depth of work you have already done. Uh, I, I think before we look at solutions, it's important to problematize the situation we, 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 we have. And one of it is that, how did we get to this level of insecurity in Nigeria? Number two, what is it about the insecurity that we have failed to deal with? And I give you a very clear example. When the mobile police was established in the 80s, it was established with a vision that the mobile police should be an armed group of policemen and women that will be deployed rapidly and effectively to deal with riots, insurrections, and other forms of criminality so that the other police, men and women, will be charged with the primary responsibility of everyday policing in terms of law and order in the country. When the military came, the Mopol was pushed to the side or pushed aside. The military started playing those roles. The military displaced Mopol and took over those responsibilities that they were not primarily established to perform. Oh, I think there's an internet challenge on Dr. Chris and uh, Dr. Chris, can you still hear me? Okay, so we've been on to Dr. Chris part. Because of the yes, hangover, because of the hang the military hangover, we continued with that pattern of still deploying the military. We saw what happened in Odi. We saw what happened in Zakibiem with the military, which ordinarily should have been a police matter, but the military forced its way there. Now, what do we do? We need to withdraw the military from the management of internal security back to the barracks to deal with defense and other related issues until when there is reasonable reason why they should be deployed in aid of civil power as defined in the Constitution. As we do that, we should strengthen the Mopol and give them all they require for addressing many of the internal security challenges that we have. But today, rather than being deployed to deal with these issues, the Mopols are the ones doing VIP protection work, which is not supposed to be their work because within the police, we have what you call the special protection unit. And the special protections unit is the unit that is supposed to handle VIP and other related matters. But we've had a distortion in terms of role assignment. And I think one of the biggest responsibility for the new service chiefs is for them to tell themselves the truth that anything that is not primarily the role of the military should be relinquished until when we are called to provide such services. For the is that new, not too late? 
for the new IG that will come in the next few months, his job is to reorganize the police in a way that strengthens the Nigeria, the mobile police force, and gives it all it requires to deal with many of the internal security challenges that we are dealing with. That is on one leg. The second leg is that it is not enough to deploy security what at, in whatever at whatever in whatever name to deal with what we are having today because many of them also have governance dimensions to them and the governance dimensions are the ones that the political leadership also need to deal with for instance the whole issue of government involvement in mediation we have the we have the Institute of Peace and Security and, uh, and Conflict Resolution in Abuja. What is that agency doing when it comes to mediation? We've not seen much. Whether we see this episodic engagement, and many of this engagement comes through support by development partners, which is not supposed to be so. We need an agency or an institute that is proactive, an institute that can easily deploy its personnel to mediate, to facilitate dialogue between aggrieved parties across the country. We've not seen much of that going on, and I think that is also an area that we need uh, to explore. The other point is about the capacity of the state itself to manage diversity. Diversity in terms of inclusion, diversity in terms of how every sector, every section of the economy of, of, the, of the country believes that this country works for the good of all, believes that regardless of the kind of appointment that is done, it is an appointment that works for us all. But where the body language of leaders, be it at the federal, the state and the local government, is viewed as one that supports a particular group at the expense of another, you begin to create this whole feeling of marginalization and exclusion. And such a feeling does not go well for a heterogeneous society such as Nigeria. The other point is that at no time in the history of this country have we witnessed the weakness of our legislative arm of government as now. The National Assembly represents that version of weakness in terms of its inability to proactively undertake oversight over the security sector. And that on its own contributed to many of the challenges we had as to whether we had the right service chiefs, as to whether the service team should go or not because we did not even see a balance sheet from the national assembly to say on the basis of our oversight these are key performance indicators that we have set for the start for the service chiefs and these and these and these are their areas of strength these are their areas of weaknesses and on the basis of this balance sheet or peace or key performance indicators, we don't think these service chiefs have the capacity 
to deliver on the mandate of security provisioning. Rather, what we saw was emotive responses and discussions in the chamber, both at the House of Reps and in the Senate, where the honorable members and senators were not discussing Nigeria, but they were discussing their regions, they were discussing their personal interests, they were discussing how to protect their seats rather than protecting the interests of Nigerians. So okay, we need a lot to we need we need we need the National Assembly to reassert itself when it comes to its capacity to effectively provide oversight over the security sector. Okay, Dr. Chris, you, you, because I think maybe what I wanted to see is, uh, I'm, I'm trying to see because I know that these are very strong theories that can help, but let me hold you on on the first proposal. You said that we need to get the military back to the barracks. And as it were, the military has been out for too long. If you get them back to the barracks, do you think that's a solution that will deal with the current security challenge? Or we should deal with the security challenge now? Because I think my one, uh, one of our listeners is saying that most of the elders that are complicit in all of this conflict are not necessarily Nigerians, Nigerian elder, elders. There are elders who crosses the border into this country with light weapons, with me, with with with, with the desperation. What so many call the desperation to take over their own land, so to say, even though they are not Nigerians. Are you do your school of thought? Because you talked about perception a few minutes ago that the government tend to uh, there's some level of perception that is going on. People thinking that one ethnic group is more than you know, the, the story of the animal farm. We are all equal, but some are more equal than the other. Do you think that that perception with the current state that sending back the military is the solution to the security challenge in this country at this moment? The cross-border movement of criminals and small arms and light, and light weapons presents a core national security as well as defense challenge, which the military is empowered to deal with. But the activities of criminal groups in the country present an internal security challenge, which the police is to deal with. In the event that the internal security challenge overwhelms the police, the police will call for the involvement of the military to provide the much needed support that is required. Where they think it is not just about support, but that there should be a takeover of that responsibility. All that is needed is to activate the constitutional provision that talks about military aid to civil power. It is a constitution. These are clearly defined constitutional provisions with respect to where and how the military should come into internal security operations. So it is not about a personal opinion, but it is about what this, the law says 
we need to do. Oh, that's that already happening. Because that said they are overwhelmed with the all of them for the time being at the same time in your state. So what happened in your state? Uh, it, is, it is it is who said it in your state? Who said it? Who said it? Who said this? Who said the military? The police have come out before now. With insecurity of this country. This uh, uh, the uh, uh, Austin, we we don't we don't we don't run we don't run we don't run a banana republic. We run a country. Within the country, there are institutions. Within those institutions, there are clear, clearly defined lines of communication. It is not enough for the IG of police to just mount any podium and say the police is overwhelmed by the situation and then he calls for, for the military. That is not how this country should be run. He reports to the president. At the point the IG recognizes that there is a security challenge that overwhelms the police, he reports to the president. The president sits as chair of the National Security Council, takes a decision directing the military, and such directly will be communicated to the National Assembly. That's the process, that's the procedure. You don't just wake up overnight and say we are overwhelmed, let the military come. So when you do that, who withdraws the military? So, but you know, like that, like I'm, 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 I'm asking you now. When you, when the, when the IG now say we are overwhelmed and the military comes in, who withdraws the military? IG did not invite the military because, like you so, said, in your, time you, in your speech, you said that uh, when the Mopo, when Mopo was created to put in. Every effect of internal security. When the military regime brought the military into all of this, and it's only for the police, of course, with the respect of police now, this was taking place. So the military force of the country. So with the with with the, with the unprepared police and with the insurgency in the northeast, kidnapping. Been across the Nicaragua state of the country with the armed robbery that is almost on the everywhere. The police, as on their own, recognizing that the is there, they don't. The military is already in internal security. Austin. Yes. I, 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 I. You shouldn't. You shouldn't mix. You shouldn't. And it's, I'm, I'm very serious about this. We shouldn't, we shouldn't mix the whole situation and create just one narrative of insecurity. The situation in the Northeast is completely different from what you have in other parts of the country. The situation in the Northeast, we have a multinational joint tax force. It's not a policing issue any longer. So. The military is not dealing with internal security operations in the Northeast. It's a multinational response involving several countries. So that is not a police responsibility. 
But within that same northeast, you might have certain issues or certain certain areas of work that the police is dealing with. When you pick Plateau as, a, as, a, as an example, where the military is involved in managing conflicts between farmers and herders, my argument is that that is purely a police responsibility. And more so that the military has been in Plateau since 2001. From 2001 to date, how many years? Are you saying the military should be here forever, but it should be in Plateau forever? Because the police cannot do it. No. No. But within the period, you have the police, the military. You should be able to design an exit strategy to say, okay, the military is coming to state ABC. And it is expected that within six months, we would have trained, mobilized, would have mobilized, trained, and equipped the police to take over that responsibility. But that is not done. Rather, you have series of special task force commanders being being sent to many of these theaters of conflict. You don't you don't work like that. That's not how to manage your security. In the event that you have a major defense challenge to deal with, where do you draw the military from? If you withdraw the military from Plateau, from Kaduna, so who do you replace them with? Certainly the police. That is why I'm Ideally. saying, yeah, that's why I'm saying, you, you need, since the police is our first point of call on internal security operations, everything possible should be done to ensure that the police is ready, is mobilized, is equipped to deal with such responsibilities rather than just allowing the military to do what they are doing now under the guise of internal security operations. Because what we have seen, the cumulative effect of the situation we have today is that we have militarized the public space. A child that was born in the year 2000 and 2001 in a state like Plateau, how old would that child be? 20. And wakes up every day to see the military because the military is involved in internal security operations. So what do you do to that child about police tomorrow? That is why you see many of these citizens harassing, insulting, fighting the police because they don't see them as agents of the state with mandates to deal with issues of law and order because their everyday life is being controlled by the military. That is not the way to go. And okay. it's, so let me... even contributed, it's, it's even contributing. This phenomenon of militarization is even contributing to many of the crises we see between the farmers and the headers. Because the military itself has is being viewed as being politicized, even by some of them. Because they are too visible. Do you agree? Do you, agree with that? Do you think that the military is politicized? To some extent, there are instances where you see that. Okay, all right. I want to quickly to one of the solutions to which are on, on the plan of the put it for too long. Uh, 
if they, they cast a colony across the country in rest of Nigeria, do you think this is a great idea considering our historical background in respect to ancestral land ownership? Um, can you repeat that, please? Okay, so the question from uh, Abiyod is that it been argued that one of the means to address the former elder crisis is to create cattle colony, that's ranches, or what they call the Ruga at the time, across the country. He's asking, do you think that's a good idea? Considering that... Um, I, I, I don't want to use the word cattle colony, I don't want to use Ruga, but let me use the word uh, grazing reserves. Uh, grazing reserves, the issue of grazing reserve is not new. Uh, we've had grazing reserves in the past, but because government has not been able, or government abandoned those reserves, did not manage them well. We saw how urbanization contributed to the disappearance of both the cattle routes, as well as encroachment on those reserves. And things that happened in the 60s, in 2000, you are saying people should leave those reserves that were abandoned for this long. It creates part of the problem we are, we are, we are, we are having. So if you want to create cattle reserve, cattle uh, grazing reserves today and cattle roots, that should be anchored within the context of involving the communities. But where government on its own want to decide and create those grazing reserves or, or cattle roots, you will face huge resistance. And it is very easy to engage people within the context of this theory of winning the hearts and minds of the citizens. Get them to say, now we want to create a cattle route. Where do you think we can do that? How do you think we can handle that? You will be able to get suggestions from the communities on their own to say, okay, we need some compensations here for you to just create the route this way. Or we don't need compensation, but we are giving you this part of our land that is not part of our farmland, but can be used as roots. But when you wake up overnight to say you want to create cattle roots without looking at how people, the peasants on those in on, on, on within those areas you are targeting for creating the roots or the reserves will, will respond, you create a huge problem. And at the end of the day, we come back to this notion of do no harm that in the in, in, under the guise of trying to resolve a problem, you create a new problem for people that maybe hitherto were living peacefully. So we need to adopt a people-centered approach to dealing with this issue of cattle, cattle roots and grazing reserves. The modernization of livestock production is something I support 100%. It is something that government should be very proactive and constructive in doing. And it's something that is, is it's something that government can do. And all that is required is 
for government to sit down with both the Katuriaras and the communities where this land will be gotten from and dialogue. But because we allowed conflict to fester, there are wounds that are deep today. And because of that wound, suspicion has crept in. And this suspicion is also accounting for the kind of resistance that we see happening today. And I think this is something that needs to be addressed and government needs to really come out quite strongly, particularly in engaging the leadership of the farmers, as well as the Katuriaras, with a view to looking at how amicable solutions or strategies can be, uh, can be, can be identified in dealing with this issue. Dr. Listen, I've listened to many groups and individuals talk about the fact that Katuriarin is a private business. But as you make that statement of Katuriarin as private business, when you put on a security hat that looks at the, the security implication of the farmer header relations in the context of how we've managed that vis-a-vis the other private businesses we talk about, then you will know that we have not been fair to the situation. And uh, when we say, okay, government should just hands off this discussion because it's private business and people keep dying. What do you say about no, that? Government responsibility to make laws. For if government movement of people along the street, we talk this way in time. It's issues. I, 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 I agree with you and we must we must explore a more comprehensive approach to dealing with this with this issue. We need laws on the movement, we need laws on the management of this of this cattle. And where those laws are absent, then you have the situation we are we, we, we are having today. For instance, I give you an example: night grazing, underage grazing. Before now, many of these situations we are dealing with were not did, did not exist. On underage grazing, night grazing, 
because people, adults, were involved in grazing and they knew what to do. And they recognized that there were, there were, there were rules about that. Two, many of the children we see today embarking on under-age grazing were in schools in the past, the nomadic schools. What happened to the nomadic schools? Government should go back, recreate, re-establish those nomadic schools, or strengthen those schools and ensure that these children are back to school and that those that will be involved in grazing are adults. Where you see an underage child that is supposed to be in school grazing, you arrest such a family. You criminalize it. When you criminalize underage grazing and the institutions of the state that are charged with the responsibility of maintaining law in the context of enforcing, we will not have such a situation happen. But because there are no rules, or because it's possible the rules are there, but no one is implementing them, then you have the situation we are having today. Because even in Abuja, the federal capital territory, you still find children grazing in the heart of Abuja, and nothing is nobody saying anything. Yet, we claim that Abuja should be a model city for us. We claim that Abuja is the mirror for Nigeria's modernity. So if we claim that Abuja is the mirror or the face of Nigeria's modernity, then we must do the right thing in terms of the kind of laws that need to be put in place. Today, we are talking about cows. Next, tomorrow, we might be talking about cows. I mean, we might be talking about dogs, goats, pigs because if a does it today and you don't enforce rules tomorrow b c d you will also do and what do you do at the end of the day you will just be dealing with anarchy and my take is that we must call this creeping towards anarchy now rather than just sit down and allow many of these things to fester because they are the things that are deepening the divisions that are happening at many levels of our society today. Thank you very much, Dr. Conversation one of the fundamental work around addressing from our elder company. Yes, if you if you kindly raise your hand, we'll I'm waiting. Anybody? One, two. Okay. So, uh, 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 
there's a okay it's a question about And Okay, uh, someone. Please, can you unmute Hamza? Hamza, Hamza. I can't. Yes. Okay. All right. Oh yeah, Hamza. Hamza, please unmute your microphone and go ahead. And the place on me and as quickly. Okay, I'm not sure if you're with me, but mentor Dr. Chris Kwaza. I am really enjoying uh, your very insightful and resourceful discussion on the insecurity situation. I wish, I wish, I wish all the stakeholders. Um, necessary and that, that are saddled with the responsibility of ensuring security within the country are uh, actually hearing these very important recommendations. Um, so my worry is, it seems, um, I don't know what your view on the um, um, community policing and uh, um, regional security outfit such as the Eastern Nigeria Security Network and the Amote Kun. And of course, as things go on, perhaps there could be some other initiatives. I'm wondering how you look at this and um, what sort of contributions um, or support you think they will render as far as stemming insecurity concerns in the country are concerned. Uh, other than that, I need to say thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, any, uh, I'm going to check if there are other individuals whose hands are still lifted. So there's another let, question here. But let me let me respond to this is on to this question. Okay, okay I wanted to put your put questions on the table. Why are you with this one? Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much, Hamza. Uh, the internalization of security in terms of what we see with the emergence of Amote Kun and uh, other uh, state level or community level security initiatives uh, that, uh, that, that are coming up is symptomatic of state failure to effectively provide the much needed security that the citizens require or the, or the citizens need or the citizens expect from the state. But there are two sides to this argument. The first is one that views security as something that should be democratized in ways that allow for subnational governments, that the state and the local government, to also be part and parcel of the security architecture by providing security at those levels. The second is one that says we need a unitarist framework for security provisioning where the federal government is in charge of the day-to-day -day security of the country. But we've seen the drawbacks of the unit, the, 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 the one that talks about unit, the unitarist 
uh, unitaries formula because the country is too large. The present number of police and other security personnel we have is grossly inadequate to deal with the very quick needs of security when it comes to happenings within our communities. And because of that, some groups are saying, okay, we can adopt a mixed method, and I, be, I belong to that group, adopt a mixed method that recognizes the role of the federal government in providing those security. The federal government can still be in charge of policing at a particular level, but certain aspects of policing should be decentralized or democratized for the, to allow the state and the local governments to control. And when you do that with such security personnel armed and empowered with all the skills that are required, you will be able to provide security for people at the community level because the federal government is a bit far from the people. And this argument, in a way, also supports this whole notion of restructuring of the Nigerian federalism in ways that looks more deeply into what powers should the federal government have, for instance, agriculture, education, health, transport, and, and, and many others. If you go to a country like Germany, the federal government has the exclusive powers of the federal government are just within five areas defense, currency, foreign relations, and maybe two, two, two others that uh, I've not mentioned. But in Nigeria, the federal government is in everything. It's yep, in almost everything. And because it's in everything, it cannot effectively give us what we require, both in terms of the education itself and agriculture. What is the business of the federal government in dealing with agriculture? The federal government has no land. Land belongs to the states. So if land belongs to the state, there should be a diffusion of that power to the state government. So we don't need a minister of agriculture. We don't need a minister of transportation except for aviation. Let the roads be mandled by the state government. And all you do in the context of such a, a, a decentralization or evolution of powers is that more monies now go to the sub-national units for them to provide the much needed services. And the same applies to security provisioning or law and order in the context of this. Okay, thank you. And the comment made by the council and quickly. Number one would be two and three and better to carry life what should present worry as a first step? Particularly the head of the country. And the second question is on um, the bearing of arms, the seven. Do you support, do you subscribe, do you agree with the government about that for self-protection? Um, 
my, my take on the statement credited to the governor of uh, Bauchi uh, State, uh, uh, Bala Mohammed, uh, is to say, I, I watched and listened to him when he was speaking about that. And I think what I saw was more of an emotion because he was responding to his friend and colleague, the governor of Benway. So he was very emotive about his response. But being emotional does not, again, he wrote the fact that as a leader, you must speak based on what the law is saying. As far as the Firearms Act is concerned, as far as all the instruments, the rules and regulations governing the bearing of arms in the country are concerned, no Nigerian is supposed to be in possession of assault weapons like AK-47. But there are specific kind of weapons, double barrel, then guns, that citizens can own. But this ownership of weapon is subject to licensing which you secure from the Nigerian police. So be it farmer, be it header, if you must own weapon, you must acquire or secure the necessary permits or license for you to acquire such weapons. But I don't think, as far as the Nigerian uh, as far as the rules are concerned, I don't think any Nigerian is allowed to bear AK-47 because AK-47 is an assault weapon that nobody, no group is allowed to bear apart from individuals that are empowered by law to hold it on behalf of the Nigerian state. That is the military, the DSS, the police, civil defense, customs, immigrations, prisons, joint, drug law. So these are the groups that so far are empowered by law to be in possession of assault weapons. To resolve the crisis, Mr. President needs to speak up. Mr. President should not allow citizens and groups, as well as the international community, to create a narrative around what he views as the farmer header conflict. And what many people see is that his body language is emboldening a particular group at the expense of the other. Unfortunately, we are in a very serious security situation in the country. And what we see every day is that Garbashewu and Femi Adesina are once speaking. Nigerians did not vote for Femi. Nigerians did not vote for Garba. Nigerians voted for President Muhammadu Buhari. And I think one minute speech statement by the president himself is more than 10 hours talk by any other individual. 
the Nigerians want to see their president speak. Nigerians want to hear what he will say. And I believe that if he speaks, many of the tensions will be doused and he should speak as a father. He should speak as an individual that is a patriot, that is a nationalist, as an individual that should not be counted by in history as someone on whose time we experienced conflict and insecurity of monumental, monumental proportion. Let history not record him negative on this part. He, he was voted by an overwhelming majority of Nigerians who, who believe that he had all it takes to lead this country. And we still believe he can do something. We still believe that as the father that he is, he can still redirect this country on the path of national unity and cohesion. And all that is required is for him to also carry everyone along. Let it be something that every section of the country believes that we have a father. And in that father, we can see that he's holding the torch of unity, the torch of peace, the torch of inclusivity, and that it is on the basis of that touch of inclusivity and unity that people will believe that they have a stake in what is happening. Today, one group might feel the president supports us, for instance. What if he is not there tomorrow? Another group, another president comes and he supports a different group. Will we continue in that way? If we continue in that way, certainly we are on the road to civil war. I think we need to stop that now. And moderate voices should be speaking, should be speaking loudly, loudly with tones that unite Nigerians rather than divide them. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Chris Quadra, senior lecturer, researcher at the Center for Peace and Security Studies and also um, a, uh, an advisor at the United States Institute for Peace. Uh, in fact, we, in the conclusive words, Mr. President, uh, I hope at some point either you, someone is listening to get it to you or at some point you get to hear or listen to this um, rodeo, you need to speak as a father figure is very important. Uh, we do know that from what someone has just written, uh, Abiodun Banjoko is saying that for bearing of arms by Helder, that a lot of people uh, do register those arms and then give them over to those elders for use. So we expect that um, a, a critical analysis of those, I mean, demilitarization and, uh, the, um, and trying to get out those arms and getting to those who register those arms and prosecute them appropriately, it will be a very useful venture at this material time. Again, we appreciate all our followers who have joined us on this webinar. I'd like to appreciate, in fact, many people are joined because it's only a one-hour session, but today we went beyond one hour because Dr. Chris was very phenomenal, uh, putting out a lot of recommendation, uh, which was very critical. I'd like to thank Alakoli Abiola, like uh, Abiodun, 
Madam Esther, thank you so much. Kubaje, all the way from Amnesty International. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, Amza Ibrahim from Kano. Thank you, Fatima Kano. Uh, appreciate you always on our show. We appreciate you. And of course, um, Banjoko, uh, thank you. My colleagues, Nena and the crew that brought this together, Esther Yusufu, and every other individual that have made this possible. Thank you. And we'll see you next week. Again, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Chris Kwaja. We do appreciate your contribution to this national discourse. We hope that sometime in the future, when we have, when we need to have a conversation around insecurity, particularly on conflict, you, you will oblige us that opportunity at, in the future. Thank you so much. I appreciate thank you. My pleasure. J2. So thank you. It's all of, from all of us at the Center for Democracy and Development CBD. We wish you the best of the week and, 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 and good wishes all the way through. Thank you. And God bless you. Bye-bye.